Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. This morning, we've come to a pivotal moment in the life of Redemption Hill. Uh, Many of you heard from last week that this is the final sermon in the Gospel of Luke series. So I think it would just be good for us to celebrate the Lord for that. Like, that's really cool. Yeah. This is number 91. This is the 91st sermon, and for some unknown reason, I'm the one preaching it. Uh, I haven't preached a single sermon in the Gospel of Luke series, by the way, uh, and I get this one. Uh, Wow. So almost 70 hours of preaching have gone into this series, um, and I can attest countless hours of preparation uh, as my last week uh, looks just like that. Uh, This series started, get this, September 7th, 2014. How many of you guys were here for that sermon? Wow! I'm ex- that's surprising. I was surprised. Um, hey, congratulations. That's really cool. Uh, half of the life of this church has been in the Gospel of Luke. Isn't that crazy? Six years old in September uh, or August, and, uh, and we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long, long time. Uh, and we've seen a lot of really cool stuff and uh, the Lord's been gracious to us. And so here we are, the 91st sermon. Um, and I, I wasn't here for the beginning, so I don't know how it started, so <laughs> sorry. We'll see what happens. Uh, hey, but we're in Luke 24, and so if you have a Bible, awesome. If you don't, we have some available for you for free, uh, and you can read along on the screens. But beginning in Luke 24, verse 36, this is what the word of the Lord says. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. 
us as individuals and, and to us as a church and that, um, that we can celebrate 91 sermons in your gospel of Luke. And so we pray this morning that you would open our minds, you'd open our eyes, you'd open our hearts to the truth of your scriptures and you would do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you probably remember this feeling from childhood, and you probably remember it vividly. A dark night around a campfire, maybe with a few of your companions. The smoldering fire illuminates the edges of the row of trees just in the distance, covered in shadow. And one of your friends just finished telling a blood-chilling account of some helpless and tormented soul, a ghastly ghost that has come to haunt from beyond the grave. You know this feeling, right? It's the post-ghost story feeling. It's a, it's a terrifying pause that leaves us helpless and shaken, palsied and weak with fear. Because the worst part of any good ghost story is this. It's the frozen dread that rests on you after the story. The silent terror in the absence of words. It's as if the tale just being told kept the monster safely under the bed. It, it held the ghouls spellbound inside the closet. I think you can agree with me that you're never more vulnerable than immediately after hearing a good ghost story, Right? So what, what's happening here? What do we have here in this text? The travelers to Emmaus, they've just told one of the best ghost stories of all time. Jesus is alive, and we saw him. Can you imagine the room? It must have been seized with this unresolved fright. Everyone has the unsettled heebie-jeebies just going through their bodies. I imagine all of them sitting there uneasily in the silence. It's evening now. The sun has gone down. Ghosts are on the prowl. And the eerie sounds of night are creeping in through the open window. The room, you can feel it. It's groaning for somebody, anybody, to settle the tension to put everybody at ease. Then, with no warning, Jesus appears. Boom, there he is, right in the middle of them, out of nowhere. And he says the complete opposite of what everybody is feeling. Peace! <laughs> he has just successfully pulled off the greatest scare of all time. Jesus is trolling his friends. <laughs> he did this to his friends. His doubting friends. His ashamed friends. The ones that ran from him when he was being crucified. These are his skeptical friends. And these are his friends who had a lot of work to be done in themselves and in the world. Jesus does this to his friends because they need it. They need it. You're never more vulnerable than immediately after hearing a good ghost story, right? And you're never more motivated to act with peace and joy than when your greatest doubts and fears are set to rest. See this passage this morning, church, in Luke 24. It gives us a glimpse into our own doubt and into the call to mission for the believer and the church as a whole. 
And so I think starting off, we see three ways that Jesus is dealing with doubt. Jesus deals with our doubt in three ways. Here's the first one. Jesus understands their doubt. He understands it. I think often we forget, I I know I forget, maybe I'm putting that on you, uh, that Jesus is fully God and and fully man. And so there's like, there's things about his humanity that I just, I forget about. Like Jesus went to the bathroom. Um, Jesus probably got sick. Yeah, he probably threw up. That's a weird image to have. Uh, But in his humanity, he experiences all the things we experience. Uh, And in the human experience, what does it mean to be human but to be bound by the physical world around us, right? That's where we live. We rely heavily on our, our perceiving, our perception of the world around us. See, all of us are many scientists. We apply the scientific method to everything, right? We're constantly testing the world around us. And we discard that which doesn't fit our framework of reason, our framework of understanding. Uh, and so resurrection to us is, sounds like science fiction. That's the human experience, plagued by doubt. See, the waters that you and I navigate, it requires uh, a healthy dose of doubt. That's what it means to be human. We have to kind of doubt stuff. Uh, if we believed everything told to us, we'd probably be in trouble. Uh, Rachel and I went to Las Vegas last weekend for a wedding, uh, and we'd never been. I'd never been to Vegas, um, and it's fascinating the onslaught from Las Vegas. No offense to anyone who's from there. It's a beautiful place, but it's very weird. Um, but what is the promise of Vegas? The Vegas, Vegas is asking you to suspend your doubts. It's telling you to, to set them aside, right? I mean, you see all of the, the massive signs uh, for, for magicians and illusionists, people who are doing things that are, that are causing you to suspend your disbelief. Right? What else do you have? You have massive amounts of gambling. Uh, and what is gambling but a promise to you? Uh, hey, put your money here because you can become like this. And so all around you, you have the promise as long as you suspend your doubts uh, about what is being promised and how to get there. Uh, my wife was um, dismayed, I think is a good word, uh, when she learned that the officiant for the wedding that we were attending was not going to be Elvis. <laughs> she was pretty bummed. Um, but the reality is, is Vegas is all about that. People who are dead are now back to life mysteriously, right? So they're, uh, you're walking down the sidewalk and you're supposed to believe that this skinny little white kid is Michael Jackson, indeed. Uh, and that the Buzz Lightyear standing over there with his wings kind of like sagging all the way down and his helmet kind of like coming off, that's the real Buzz Lightyear, right? See, the promise of Vegas is you're supposed to suspend your disbelief. And the reality is, is all of us operate with a seemingly healthy dose. And Jesus knows this. He knows this. Like he walked in full humanity. Jesus knew doubt He knew the temptation toward doubt. Think about his life in the flesh on earth. Luke 4, he's in the wilderness, and he spends uh, all this time out there being tempted by the devil. And can you imagine the amount of doubt that would have surfaced to tempt him, to disbelieve that God was taking care of him and holding him together? He knew it. When he's in the garden, we love, we love 
the end of the garden scene, right? Father, thy will be done. And that is a beautiful prayer, and we should lay hold of it. But it took, it took sweating drops of blood to get to that prayer. Jesus knew the temptation to doubt. I like this quote from John Bloom. He says that doubt is not the complete absence of faith. It is faith laden with weights of unbelief, which threaten to sink us. Jesus was able to immediately cast off those weights of unbelief. He was able to cast them away. And he was able to encourage the, the man who cries out in Mark 9, who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. He knew, he knew the unbelief of man. He knew the doubt that weighs heavily on us. But here's the turn. Jesus makes fun of their doubt in this, doesn't he? Like, he makes light of it. Think about it. There's, this, there's a very real uh, important element to the resurrection story that Jesus comes back physically resurrected. He's not a ghost. Like, he says, touch, feel me, look, watch me eat something. Uh, he, he's a real person. But the ghosts are ter- or the ghosts, the disciples are terrified that he's a ghost. And so, what do you think is a way that Jesus could have, like, alleviated that fear immediately? He could have knocked. He could have knocked. Knock on the door, Jesus. Don't appear right in front of us. But he does this. He does this. Why? I think he's making fun of them. I think he shows up and he says, you, you, are, you are so quick. You'd believe a ghost before you believe me resurrected from the dead. Jesus understands their doubt. He knew it. And he makes fun of it. That's the first thing we learn. The second is this. Jesus speaks peace into their doubt. Jesus speaks peace. Now, it's, a, it's definitely a funny scene uh, with the disciples not in a state of peace whatsoever. Uh, you have to think about their new situation, right? Uh, they're feeling pain. They're, they're, they're feeling hurt. They believed certain things that didn't come true. They're ashamed because they were a part of abandoning this Jesus in his seemingly lowest hour. And they feel fear. I mean, they're in a locked room. They're behind a door. They're hiding because they don't know what the authorities are going to do. So they're, they're feeling all of this, these feelings within this new situation. This is, this is the friend. Jesus is the friend whom they loved, right? He's the teacher they obeyed. He's the brother they abandoned. And he's dead. Or he was dead. There's a lot happening here for the disciples. A lot of chaos. And what's the resurrected Jesus' first words to his disciples? It's peace. It's peace. Uh, there's a com- uh, commentator that I read who said that peace here uh, is, is, is metonymic or, or it's shorthand for salvation. Like this is a much bigger word than, than we, we have right now in our English language. Uh, there's something happening here that is a lot bigger. Uh, there's a great J.C. Ryle quote that I'm going to read to you. It's on the screen. He says this, I am quite unable to regard this expression as being nothing more than the ordinary salutation of courtesy. It seems to, be, to me to be full of deep and comfortable truth. It implied that the great battle was fought and the great victory won over the prince of this world and peace with God obtained for man according to the old promise. 
Let it be noted that peace was the last word in the prophetical hymn of Zechariah. Peace on earth, part of the good news proclaimed by angels when Christ was born. Peace, the proclamation which the 70 disciples were ordered to make in every house which they visited. Peace, the legacy which our Lord left and gave to the apostles on the night before he was crucified. And peace was the first word which he spoke when he appeared among them again after his resurrection. Peace is a gospel word, and Jesus uses it well here. You think about the, the, the travelers to Emmaus just earlier in this chapter. What did they say in verse 21? They said, we, we had hoped that Jesus, this, this one, was the one to redeem Israel. This is what we had hoped for. And, and they think that it's not possible because he was, he was killed. And so what Jesus is saying here by speaking peace, this word of salvation, this word of fulfillment, is that the great despair of the Emmaus travelers is reversed. Jesus' death did not signify his incapability of being Israel's redeemer. It secured it. Peace is a massive word here. And we find comfort that Jesus speaks peace into the doubt of the disciples. Third, Jesus patiently confronts their doubt. Uh, So my story of becoming a Christian uh, happens, well, this part happens uh, when I was a 16-year-old. And so I'd grown up in a very nominal Catholic home um, where Jesus wasn't really celebrated. uh, And I I wasn't very clear to me what had happened uh, with his life or why he was important. Just knew that I hated sitting through Mass uh, and so as a 16-year-old, uh, I started going to, a, uh, going to a church that some of my friends had invited me to. And um, I remember going there with tons of doubts. I mean, just laden with doubt about this Christianity thing. Uh, and there was a night, which happened uh, once a month, where the preacher would explicitly give an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And uh, so some of you know that moment, right? Um, Everyone kind of sits, you know, heads bowed, eyes closed. uh, And he made the offer to say, hey, if you have any questions, if you have any questions or you want to respond to this call to follow Jesus, then just stand up, just walk to the back. There'll There'll be counselors back there ready to receive you. And so me, I have no experience with this moment. I hear questions And I think, I have many questions. I have lots of questions. And so I stand up, grab one of my friends. I'm like, hey, I'm going to go ask some questions. You want to hear these? Because it's going to be good. And I start walking to the back of the room. Uh, And I uh, would later find out that uh, the the gentleman who was counseling me was pretty nervous. Um, He hadn't had, well, for one, personality-wise, he was just kind of a nervous guy. Uh, and uh, he walked me back into one of the counseling rooms with my friend, and uh, we sit down. And here I am, you know, laden with all these doubts, and not and not in like a not in a humbled way, like I just don't know what to do with this. More like a, I'm about to prove this fool wrong. Dinosaurs. That's all I'm going to use. <laughs> and so I'm sitting in this counseling room with this counselor, and before I know it. My young, impressionable 16-year-old self is repeating something called the sinner's prayer. 
Uh, now, some of you from the South probably know the sinner's prayer. It's kind of, um, it's not wrong if you found Jesus because you prayed the sinner's prayer. Praise the Lord. But sometimes we kind of treat it, especially in the South, as kind of this magical formula. Uh, and it seemed like that was the route I was headed down really fast. Uh, and so I finished the sinner's prayer, and I'm like, what just happened? I was about to ask all these great questions. I, why did I pray this? I, didn't, I don't mean that. Now, me being the, the, the impressionable young man that I was, I just thought, okay, I guess this is done. Uh, and as we opened the door, tons of my friends ran up and they were like, oh, do you feel different? And I'm like, yeah, I feel different. Because it's like, here's all these friends who are encouraging me, and they love me, and, and I hadn't been loved that way before. Uh, and I wanted to be a part of the team, I guess. And so I was like, I guess this is how it works. Well, none of my doubts had been dealt with. There was no true conversion in that moment. And I don't say this to shame the counselor who ended up being one of my close friend's dads. Uh, what I do mean is that it took months after that for the Lord just to kind of sift through the doubts that I had, to, to patiently, over a long period of time, confront those things that I had held on to for so long. Uh, and I couldn't even tell you the date. Four or five months later, I walked up to my student pastor and said, hey, what happened then? I don't know what that was. But I believe now. I believe now. See, the Lord was patient with me uh, in my doubt, and he was loving uh, to surround me with brothers and sisters who would be patient with me in the midst of that. Uh, and we see this, Jesus patiently confronting the doubt of the disciples. And he does this in four ways. The first is he confronts them by love. He confronts them by love. I kept, as I was prepping, I kept thinking about John. The Gospel of John is kind of my favorite gospel, so sorry, Luke. But um, I kept thinking about John, and there's a scene in John where Jesus, he goes to wash the disciples' feet uh, before he is, um, he walks away to be crucified. And he, the text says this in John 13, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So these are, these are people Jesus loved. He loved them deeply. He cared about them. His question to them right here, right after they're kind of frightened, he says, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? This is not a scathing rebuke. This is, this is the, the questioning, the careful questioning of someone who loves them, asking them. Jesus loves them. And this is what's beautiful here. This is how he confronts by love. He won't leave them to their doubt. He doesn't leave them there. Jesus confronts them by his love. Second, he confronts them with his presence. This is a confrontation by presence. Verse 39, he says... He, he, he literally comes to them himself and he says, you see that it, it is I, myself, it's me. Have you ever thought about like why Jesus comes to them? Like he didn't have to. He could have just left it as it was with the, the women who ran to see the empty tomb. And they could have inspired faith through the spirit by that moment. He could have ascended immediately after resurrecting. Instead, he's kind of hanging out on earth for a while. Jesus comes to them by his presence. He comes as himself to them. Look at the disciples' response. They have two responses. The first is fear. They're, they're petrified, uh, which often happens when the miraculous occurs in the Bible. And then the second response 
is this, it, the, the words say, they disbelieved for joy. Disbelieved for joy, what does that mean? This is too good to be true. This is too good to be true. Uh, I saw a, have a friend who surprised his wife for her birthday uh, by inviting all of her friends from other states uh, to come and surprise her for this party or whatever. And um, so they all show up and they kind of film her response and she's like, ah! And uh, it's this beautiful moment, just like all these friends are piling in. They just had a baby and so they're piling into the house. And I think, I, I don't know how much time goes by, but some time goes by uh, and there's another knock at the door. And now her parents, they live, they've lived forever in Germany. Uh, so they don't see each other very often. You know, they just had a baby. And um, her husband had, had gotten them to, to come over uh, for this surprise, and she has no idea. And so they're standing outside, and this is like, I'm sitting here watching on my phone, which is our age, I guess. And, uh, and they knock on the door, and she opens it, and you see immediately on her face, there's just this disbelief for joy. Like, this is too good to be true. Uh, and she just melts, melts into her parents, and it's this beautiful thing. And I'm like texting him, like, why am I crying watching your surprise party for your wife? Uh, but you know this feeling. This is, this is far too good to be true. We know this feeling. And this is the disciples' response here. And it happens because Jesus shows up as himself. But he also does this when he confronts with his presence. He also gives them evidences of his physical resurrection, right? Like he tells them, he's basically saying, hey, come close. Like, look, use your eyes. See me. Touch, touch me. Touch me. Watch, watch me eat this fish. Like, it's me. And I'm here. He's confronting their doubt with himself. And the third is this confrontation by fulfillment. Uh, 44 through 47. Uh, sadly, the physical evidence is not enough to change or transform their souls. Uh, in fact, even later on, uh, or, or actually in another gospel, it says that some of the disciples still kind of were still a little skeptical, even as he ascended into heaven. Uh, Luke doesn't take that track. Instead, he, he, he basically shows it here, that the physical evidence of resurrection is not enough to change them. Uh, and we, we know, we kind of get this idea um, and we know this for a number of accounts, but my favorite is James 2, uh, where it says that even the demons believe. The demons believe God. They, they believe he's real. They believe he exists. They believe that Jesus raised from the dead, but they shudder. Because it's not a saving faith. It's not a saving belief. And so Jesus takes time here to open their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, I think that you can say that this is just a, hey, he's just kind of teaching them the Bible. And I think that's happening. Uh, but I also think there's something deeper here. There's a transforming element that's occurring as Jesus actually shows them the fullness of the gospel and how the entire Bible relates back to Jesus. I'm not going to do that. Bill did it all last week. And so you can just go to the, you know, the podcast or the video and watch that. He did a phenomenal job with it. But know this, the entire Bible points to Jesus and Jesus opens their minds to understand it to see this gospel thread. And this is a transformative moment. The people traveling to Emmaus, it says, didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way? Reminds me of Hebrews 4. It says, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of mind and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
this word of God is living and active. Something is happening here that's transformative. Jesus confronts their doubt by revealing to them the fulfillment that he is. And it transforms their hearts. Fourth is this, confrontation by promise. So we have confrontation by love, by presence, by fulfillment, and now confrontation by promise. Verse 49, he says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. I'm sending. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, hold on, I know you still have some doubt, but just wait. Somebody else is coming. Somebody else is coming. There's two aspects of promise here. Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God, the Helper, the Counselor. And he's, the promise comes in two ways. It's first, is this promise of empowerment. Like, the disciples probably feel, feel pretty weak right now, uh, pretty fearful and, and still clinging to their doubts. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm sending someone who's going to empower you. So have no fear. Don't doubt the Spirit. The promise is coming. And it's also the promise of his presence. It's the promise of his presence. At the end of Matthew 28, um, he, says, he says this. He says, listen, behold, I, w- I will be with you. I will be with you to the end of the age. And he's talking about the Spirit. Jesus, Jesus is confronting their doubts by promise, saying, that, listen, this is coming, and it's going to reveal a lot. Uh, and the disciples are going to see and experience some wild things just in the book of Acts right after the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus confronts their doubt. He doesn't leave them to it. He confronts it. And then there's a f- fourth point in all this. I know maybe the points are confusing. Don't, don't let it be. Uh, we have to see, and this is how it applies here to us, we have to see the, Luke's purpose with all this. The, the Lucan purpose here. Uh, the first sermon of this series, you know, 90 sermons ago, um, three years ago, was in Luke 1. Uh, and, and the title of it was... Um, Actually, I don't have a title, but it was, it was talking about certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. This is what Luke tells uh, Theophilus when he's writing this gospel. He says, listen, I'm writing this. I'm, I'm gathering all this intel, this narrative, so that you might have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. And this is Luke's purpose, the entire gospel. And so it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful to see Luke's hand through the power of the Spirit writing this Narrative that holds together both ends. That his desire is that, that you might have certainty as you read this, Theophilus. And then look, here's the certainty of the resurrection. And here's the beauty of this church. He wants us to have that certainty as well. Like the appearance of Christ to his disciples is for us too. It's for us. And so within, with knowing that, that the appearance is for us... Know this, Jesus is not afraid of your doubt. He's not afraid of it. Like he understands it. And he's watched his best friends doubt him. His family members doubt him. He's not afraid of your doubt. So don't come ashamed as if you're hiding something. He knows it. And he's not afraid of it. Hear this, confessing your doubt, being honest about your doubt... It allows for, or, or better yet, it's an invitation for God to be our Savior. So be honest about it. Jesus is not afraid of it. Why are you? Jesus speaks peace to us in our doubt as well. 
He speaks peace to us. Doubt is a weird thing. If you've experienced um, a good deal of it, then you know uh, the feeling of chaos that it kind of swirls you into. Um, that you're just caught up in this chaos of doubt that you don't feel like you can control. And you could probably identify in your life right now there's chaos happening because of doubts that you've held on to. And guess what? Jesus speaks peace to you. He speaks peace to your doubt. And Jesus also, he means for our doubt to be confronted. He confronts the disciples' doubt, yes, but he also wants our doubt to be confronted. And so, question for you, are you allowing your doubt to be confronted? Are you hiding it? Are you hoarding it? Let it be confronted. Pray it to God. Give it to him. Confess it to your friends. Are you in community where you're being honest about your doubts? And then are you like, like reading and like searching the scriptures and reading authors that you love? And like, are you actually seeking out resources to deal with it? Because sometimes our doubts are like really difficult, hard, mystery texts or thoughts that take a long time to unravel. And you may never see unravel. But then some of our doubts are kind of like, there's already really good explanations for it. And if you haven't done the due diligence to deal with it, then what, what are you sitting on? Jesus means for our doubts to be confronted. And finally, Jesus calls us to lay down our doubt. He wants us to lay it down. I think there's a temptation in, um, especially in our circles, to, to just be honest about where we are in our faith. And I think that's super important. So important. Uh, but sometimes our honesty leads us to an apathy to remain where we are. And the reality is, is Jesus is not saying, it's not the most noble thing to just hold all your doubts like this and say, yeah, I'm, I believe, but I got all these doubts. Walking around with them. Jesus is calling you to lay them down. John 20, he, sa- he says to them, he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe, church. Lay down your doubt. I shared that John Bloom quote earlier about doubt being this weight of unbelief. And Hebrews 12 is beautiful because it says this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Church, we're meant to lay down every weight, including our doubt. Are you taking steps to do that? So within this Jesus call to lay down our doubt, he says this in our text today. He says, you are witnesses to these things. He reminds them who they are. He reminds them what they've seen. He gives them a supernatural ability to see it and, and to experience it and feel it. And he says, you are witnesses. See, Jesus has a better plan for his followers than to allow them to remain in their doubt. He deals with their doubt to then fuel them into his mission. There's a purpose here. There's still work to do. It's his father's work. And he's about to leave them again. He's about to leave them again. Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster that the disciples are on right now? Like first the one that they love and the one they followed for years is murdered on a tree. And the world as they know it is just flipped upside down. Fear, anger, shame, foolishness. 
that right in the middle of this crazy ghost story, he appears before them. And so what are they feeling now? It's shock, and then it's a little bit of fear, and then it's anger, and then it's bewilderment and joy. And to make it worse, now he says, okay, now I'm actually leaving you for real. And so here's another myriad of emotions, confusion, and then fear, and then anger. See, this pattern is not new for the disciples. They're just being thrown around emotionally. Uh, And it's tiresome. But Jesus is kind and patient with them. His goal is to lead his people from doubt and into worship and joy. And guess what? We have this in the ascension of Christ. See, at the ascension, the church has given her first instructions. It's the starting point for the call to mission for every believer. It's our call. It's our blessing that every believer dies to sin, is raised to walk in resurrection life, and then receives the ascended Christ's call to go. That is our call, church. And so we see this real briefly in four ways here at the end of Acts 24. Let's read this, starting in verse 50. It says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We see four things here in the ascension, and then we'll, we'll finish. First, the necessity of the ascension. The necessity. See, Luke has this theme of fulfillment all just going all throughout his gospel and even into Acts. Uh, and and this, this ascension idea is not new. Like, he's been preparing for the departure of Jesus since, uh, since the beginning. And so you see even clearly in Luke 9, um, they're talking, uh, they're, he's about to go to Jerusalem. And the, and the phrase in 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, to be taken up. And so this idea of departure is not new for the gospel of Luke. Like this is, this is supposed to happen. It's going to happen, right? And, and you get a real, um, like this eerie feeling of similarity when you think about the transfiguration in Luke 9. The transfiguration. What happens here? Jesus leads uh, Peter, John, and James up to the mountain to pray. And in that moment, he's transformed before them. He's transfigured. Uh, and he's with Moses, and he's with Elijah, and they're talking, and there's just this crazy thing happening, and Peter is, like, so bewildered, and we all love Peter because he's just, you know, classic, like, fumbling all his words. And, uh, and he says, like, uh, Lord, do you want us to make you, like, some tents or something? We'll just hang out here. Like, we can hang out. We'll take care of you. We'll serve you. Uh, and the text even says, right after he says that, that for he did not know what he was saying. Like, that's what it says about Peter, which you can imagine, like, Peter, like, he probably, like, was pretty mad at all of his friends, because everything they wrote about him, you read the Gospel of John, like, he's just a fool. Uh, And so they're probably having to deal with that even now um, in the eternal state, but, uh, and so at the Transfiguration, what's happening here? Like, there's this beautiful thing happening in front of them, and, and what's Peter's desire? His desire is to stay. His desire is to, to, to sit down, to make some tents, and uh, to just linger on this mountaintop, to marvel at what is happening before them. But what happens? The text says the clouds cover them, and the Father speaks, and he says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And what does Jesus do? It says the, the clouds depart, and Jesus looked the same as he did right before uh, and then they descend down the mountain. 
And so there's a temptation for us to, to linger at these, these mountaintops, to linger at these moments of uh, the miraculous, uh, and God is calling them forward into mission. That is what Jesus is about. He's about his Father's will. The Son continues his mission. This is Luke's theme of fulfillment. This is why we have the ascension. And there's two other aspects of this necessity. It's, it's necessary because this is the means from this is how the church is empowered for mission. See, this ascension actualizes the coming of the Father's promise, the Spirit of God. This is the actualizing moment. He tells him, wait, just wait. I'm going, and when I go, someone else is coming for you. He says in John 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Your advantage. For I, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus must ascend, it's necessary, so that the church can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful scene in John 20. Jesus is about to leave, and he, he says to them, Peace be with you. There it is again, peace. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. He breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus, is ne- it's necessary for him to send so the Holy Spirit can come. And it's also necessary for him to send because he finishes his priestly work of advocacy for us. I never thought about this, but the priestly work of Christ is his sacrifice on the cross, right? But it's not just that. It's also his intercession for us with the Father. That's his priestly work. So if he doesn't ascend, he doesn't fulfill the fullness of his priestly work. So Jesus must ascend so that he can be our full advocate. Hebrews 1, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 7, consequently, he's able to save to the other most those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 1 John 2, 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Church, Jesus must ascend so that he can be our full advocate. This is beautiful. This is the necessity of the ascension. Second, the effect of the ascension. What happens out of the ascension? In Luke's gospel, this is how it unfolds. You have the disciples' true faith response. They they actually believe. They actually respond in faith. It says they worshipped him with joy. It says they returned, meaning they obeyed him with joy. And it means they hoped and they lived in that hope with joy for the Father's promise. And that's what you get in the book of Acts. This is, this is the effect of the ascension, is that the disciples respond in faith. This is beautiful. This is our call as well, to worship with joy, to obey with joy, to hope and live in the spirit with joy. That's the effect of the ascension. Third, the fulfillment of the ascension. Uh, and this kind of gets into trying to tie together this whole series. We've titled this series, Good News for All People. Good News for All People. See, Luke's understanding of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is that it is good news for all people. In verse 46, he says, thus it's written, so Jesus says, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The ascension is the fulfillment of this good news for all people. And it effectively creates for the church of the ascension. The church of the ascension. 
we have a call to mission because of it. Like this is the beginning point into the book of Acts. The church takes up the call to mission, and we're, we take up this call by doing three things. The first is proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection. We are a people who proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul tells us it's of first importance that Jesus died and was raised again and ascended. Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he says this is the, de- the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men and God raised him up. So the question is, is our Christian life marked by this? Are we marked by proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ? For us, church, every week is Holy Week. Every week is Holy Week. We celebrate Good Friday and that Christ died and paid for sins. And then we celebrate Resurrection Sunday that he was raised again to life uh, because that is our future now. Every week is Holy Week. And we're called to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. This is what happens in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. They say, what shall we do after hearing this sermon? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Church, our call is to proclaim the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, and to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. This is Holy Week in practice. Repentance, dying to self, living to Christ. It's our call. And then third, we're to proclaim to all nations. The end of Peter's sermon in Acts 2 He says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Church of the Ascension proclaims these three things. That's our call, is to proclaim them as well. And so as we conclude, Jesus deals with our doubt and we're called to lay it down, church. Lay down your doubts. Embrace belief and the power of the Holy Spirit And then proclaim the good news to all people. This is the heart of Luke's gospel. This is the fuel for the acts of God through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our calling too. And this is the great need of our world. And so may we be so bold to take it up and go. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that we believe, but help our unbelief. God, I know many of us have come in here with varying degrees of of faith and various amounts of doubts that we're holding on to. And so I pray you'd give us great courage and boldness to lay them down before you. I pray we would trust the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we would embrace the power of the Holy Spirit. So help, help my friends in here, help, help me to then turn and proclaim this good news to all people. This is our call. This is why we exist here now. It's to tell a better story to our city, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to the world. And so God, we ask for you to help us. Holy Spirit, come, fill us, change us, send us. And we ask all of this in the name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.